0: Welcome to the inaugural episode of the Sea Change Podcast. This is a show dedicated to telling the story of coastal advocacy and shining a light on people that are being kind to the planet. Each episode, you will meet a person or group of people that are driven to leave this watery world in a better place than they found it. I am your host, Jenna Valente, and I am honored to be joined by a very special guest, Not only because he is my first ever guest on the show, but he is also my boss. (laughs) Um, And because I know once we get chatting, I will likely forget to pause. So before I introduce him to you, let's take a quick break to acknowledge our sponsors.
1: Welcome, everybody. This is Peter Ravella. Let's do a little business, Tyler. Thank our sponsor today.
0: Absolutely. Well, uh, by this point, our listeners are, are hopefully familiar with the American Shore and Beach Preservation Association. This is the premier coastal advocacy organization in the United States. And the fall conference, Peter, is coming up, and it promises to be a good one.
1: It will be in Galveston, Texas, October 30th to November 2nd. uh, 200 speakers, three days of in-depth dive into beaches and shorelines in America. Come to the conference. Register today at asbpa.org. We're going to be there, Tyler.
0: We will. We're going to have a booth there. We will be podcasting there. We're going to uh, be interviewing the keynote speakers, Derek Brockbank, the executive director, uh, and you, uh, the conference goers and our listeners. We would love to have you on our final show where we will be uh, interviewing people and asking them what they learned at the conference and what their takeaways are. We cannot wait. Welcome back to the Sea Change podcast. It's my pleasure to welcome Tim Dillingham, the executive director of the American Literal Society, to the show. Tim, thanks for joining us today.
1: Well, Jenna, thanks for having me. It's really great to be your
0: kickoff guest here. So I know that I'm super interested in learning more about your background, but be- before we go there, I need to ask the million dollar question. So, the American Literal Society. Is it literal, littoral, or any other way that people say that word? Um, I know that a lot of people say it differently, um, but I would love to know, how do you pronounce it and what does it mean? So we always
1: say literal, literal, uh, but I tell you, it, sometimes it depends on which part of the country you're from. So I hear littoral, if you go to France, it's littoral. Uh, you know, the joke I always use when I start conversations are, or is, if you, if you weren't raised by Jacques Cousteau, you probably don't know what the word means, and it refers to that area along the coast uh, where where the ocean meets the coastline, and um, we really use it to describe the place that we do our work, uh, where our interests are, much more in the estuaries and the bays and along the Um, the edges of of the coastline um, as opposed to the deep ocean.
0: So um, now that we've set that straight, could you tell us a little bit more about who the society is as an organization? um, What is the society's mission and what are some of the core values? Well, we're, um, I think, one of the
1: older uh, coastal uh, conservation organizations in the country. We were founded in 1961. And the mission is to promote the study and conservation of marine life and its habitats. Uh, We spend a lot of time um, defending the coast from harm. And I think perhaps sometimes most importantly, we also work to empower others to do the same type of work. So we are a membership-based organization. Um, We have uh, fishermen, scuba divers, surfers, beachcombers, Sort of coastline lovers of all type um, come together um, through the organization and we spend a lot of time out on the beach, out on the shore, exploring nature, exploring the life that's there, talking about it, and then ultimately trying to figure out how we can contribute to caring for the coast and taking care of this really just amazing, precious, but very, very vulnerable um, place and life um, that we've been uh, gifted with.
0: So I also will note that um, even though I work for the society, I, um, I'm based up in Boston, but I have to say that you, where the headquarters is on Sandy Hook down in New Jersey is this really incredible um, juxtaposition between nature and then uh, you have the skyline of New York City right in the background and I always find that so inspiring when I go down to visit, um, just seeing exactly what we're doing the work for um, and a reminder of you know the urbanization that's happening around the country, but thinking about how we can do it in a sustainable way. Um, so it's just a fascinating location that that we have for our headquarters down there in New Jersey.
1: Yeah, you know, it really does uh, encapsulate the work that we do. And, um, and the challenges, as you said, that we face as a society, as a global society, because I don't think that the issues and the concerns um, that we work on on the doorstep of you know the, the country's largest city um, are much different than many places around the world. Um, you know, it has a great history too. It also, I think, reflects um, a lot of the promise of where we can succeed because. Uh, For those who don't know, Gateway National Recreation Area, which um, sits on both sides of the entrance to New York Harbor, um, is about 5,000 acres, I guess, of open space now. It used to be an Army base, and it's been a military installation of one type or another since the 1700s. And... um, in the end, in the 1970s, it, its last incarnation as a military facility was as a Nike missile defense base for for New York. When the Army decommissioned it, they turned it over to the National Park Service, and it was a huge um, process that the public went through to define what they wanted all that open land that sat there right on the doorstep of New York City to be used for. And luckily, they... Um, they decided to use it as a nature preserve, as a natural laboratory, and as a recreation area. Um, so we are the first beaches that you hit, the first ocean beaches that you hit coming south of New York City. Um, about seven and a half miles of just beautiful open open beach, um, still intact dune systems, maritime forests, lots of wildlife, a major stopover for birds on the migration. And more recently, uh, we see whales offshore again, which I always think is such a wonderful thing uh, to see whales outside of New York. Um, So it's a very special place, and we try to tie it back to the lessons we're trying to share with people, not only of the beauty of the shoreline, the beauty of the life that's in the ocean, but um, the challenges and the possibilities and sort of the creative answers people could come up with when they put their hearts and souls into it.
0: Absolutely, And for any of the listeners who have yet to visit Sandy Hook, um, it is just a stunning um, example of what we can do if we protect those areas that are vital to um, conservation and wildlife and recreation. Um, it's a wonderful place to go visit. I highly recommend it. Um, and so, Tim, I would love to learn a little bit more about your background, um, if you could tell us where you're from, and if you find that that place has inspired you um, at all to pursue the line of work that you're in. So, I'm a, I'm a Navy brat. My father was a
1: naval officer, a career naval officer, and I lived all over the world in two year stints. Um I was born in the Mediterranean, in, in, in the island of Cyprus, and um, we then moved to California, to Virginia, across back across the Atlantic to Spain, where I lived on the southern coast of Spain, and back to Maryland, uh, then to Japan, and then back to Maryland again, uh, where I went to college, and um, you know, sort of started my career, and my family is still there. Uh, my folks have a farm, an old farm was built or established in 1698 on the Chesapeake Bay. So that's really my touchstone in this world of, of all these wanderings that I do. <laughs> but, uh, you know, I was really just lucky enough to really never be more than, uh, you know, a half a mile from the ocean. And um, it was literally in my in my blood from the very beginning. My mother tells stories. Uh, uh, in California, we lived in Pacific Grove uh, back in the early 60s. Of so, you know, looking out the back door and finding that I climbed over the fence and was trying to get down to the water's edge where the sea lions were. And, um, you know, when I lived in Spain, my brother and I used to walk the beaches and play in the old bunkers that the Germans and the Spanish had built uh, during World War II. And I don't think we wore shoes for the entire two and a half years that we were there. Um, so, and I went to high school in Annapolis, Maryland, uh, on the Chesapeake Bay, and um, came back from, came to Annapolis from Japan. So I came from living in a very foreign country in the mid 1970s um, to a southern, very small community. Um, we lived in a neighborhood that was made up of uh, watermen, of uh, oyster tongers, and crabbers, and. So I got introduced to that culture of the Chesapeake and people making their livelihoods from the water um, when we came back uh, back there and so that's really where my my love affair with the Chesapeake started Um, and I went to school in Maryland, uh, um, did my graduate work up in Rhode Island, again lived right on the ocean, worked for the coastal management agency up there Um, and uh, just you have know, always been either on the water or on the edge of the water or in the water. Uh, i I learned to dive in college, and um, I'm a sailor and a boater, and, um, um, you know, lake beaches and hiking along the coastline. So um, all that has just been, you know, I uh, guess contributed to my feeling like that that's the place I belong, right? I feel, um, I, I will find myself, you know, catch myself really feeling very, very satisfied when I'm out on the beach or when we're in the muck um, doing a marsh restoration project or we're hauling oyster shells to rebuild reefs along the Delaware Bay. Um, there's just a really deep sense of satisfaction when I find myself in those places.
0: I feel like I can relate to your story um, in a number of ways because we have a few areas of overlap where I also was a military brat. My father was in the Coast Guard. Um, So we did not get the international experience, but everywhere we moved, um, we moved in periods of three-year stints. It was all coastal or on some large body of water. And then I also, in my post-college years, moved to Annapolis, completely fell in love with the Chesapeake Bay, um, and spent a few years doing work um, to protect and conserve that area. Something that I found fascinating about each of the areas that I lived in is how uh, vital that coastal culture and that coastal community is to the people that live there. Um, It's apparent no matter where you move, that those watery places in the coastlines are pivotal to the economy, to the way of life, to just recreation and stress relief. Um, So I love that you have also had those experiences in your life and then even farther on, you spent time up in New England. So um, we, we definitely have that overlap. Um, But that leads me to wonder, so I recently was on um, a different podcast, which is hosted by Peter and Tyler, who are um, the hosts of the American Shoreline Podcast, which is another show that's housed within the American Shoreline Podcast Network. And when they had heard my whole saga of bouncing around from place to place, they wondered, Um, if there is any specific beach or ocean or coast that comes to mind when you envision what your beach is Um, over time have you developed a specific connection to a certain place Um, and if so what is that place?
1: Oh well, that's that's tough because I've been on some really really beautiful places around the world on the beaches. I, I will say though that um, so at my family's farm there is still we have about 600 feet I think of uh, unconsolidated bluff on the bay, and as you know, uh, lots of the Chesapeake Bay shoreline has been armored over the years to stop erosion, and my my father is uh, adamant about. Allowing the natural processes to take place, and I think really it comes down to he loves the bank swallows. They live in the live in the bank itself. But so we have this little beach, and it's in a very rural part of Maryland, so it's very, uh, very private, very unique. And um, whenever I'm down there, uh, I, I always take my cup of coffee, go down, and start the day there. So that's that's like my beach. That's really my beach in, in the world, but. I think of uh, Poplin Beach, you know, up south of Bath in Maine. Um, I think of uh, the barrier islands on the south shore of Rhode Island. Uh, I was just recently back on Block Island and the cobble beaches that are there. So, I mean, they're all unique and they all, I kind of try to make room in my heart for all of them because they all, they all evoke these different experiences. Uh, But this little stretch of sand. Kind of stuck in between two long riprap walls. <laughs> That's a very special place for me, and um, really is is very iconic. Um, you know, because I've been lucky enough to have you know, my kids grow up and you know have them watch them from when they were very very young. Um, you know, doing that first, put your toe in the water and splashing in the water and throwing jellyfish at each other. <laughs> and all Those kind of things that you do um, that really just build those affinities and those connections you have to places.
0: Absolutely. I feel like um, many of the beaches that come to mind are dependent on what time period I'm thinking about and what period of my life I was in and how old and where we were living. But I definitely have one that is a, a deeper connection and a deeper meaning to me. And that is our, our family also has a place up in um, Gouldsboro, Maine, which is just outside of Bar Harbor, the Scudic side of Bar Harbor. Um, so I always think of that rocky coastline and that freezing cold water um, that you know our grandparents would throw us in and tell us that it, it's good for us and it's good for our <laughs> circulation. And, and I don't know if they actually meant it or if, if that's just something they said to make us get in the water. But um, some of my fondest memories are definitely tied to that place. And I think having access to those places um, is so important um, and allowing people to have opportunities to go visit the coast and have clean water and public access um, so that they can they can have similar memories like to the ones that that we cherish so deeply. Yeah, I think there's no doubt that
1: we've been really fortunate and, and I absolutely agree with you that um, your fondness for these places are tied to your experiences. I mean when you were talking about the people living along the water, I think and I'm obviously very biased, but I, I think you get you get tied, and these communities are tied to the rhythms of the ocean or the bay or the coastline, which are in many ways are um, just sort of more apparent, more present in people's lives, right? There's lots of conversations about where the tide is, right? When the tide's going to be in, when the tide's going to be out, when the storm is coming, you know, the boat's tied down, how the crab's running... Um, just kind of weaves its way into everyday conversation. So, so your life, you know, the rhythms of your life or our lives are tied very closely to these places. And I imagine that's true in all communities. And just, you know, I've never had the experience of being in a agricultural community in the middle of the country, even, who I'm sure tied to the weather and tied to the seasons and the cycles. But um, but it makes it very special. And you know, it. it the society just to kind of broaden this a little bit has done lots of work over the years for about public access and trying to make sure that the that area that's the public trust right is available to everyone and it's not locked away um and you know sold off to the highest bidder which as you can imagine is a sort of constant um um, um fight that people are having in California and Hawaii and New Jersey and Maine, uh, just about everywhere that you have that bounty, you also have people trying to kind of keep it to themselves.
0: Yeah, and I I know that that has been a really hot topic in the headlines lately, and I feel like it will continue to be that way as the population grows. Um, and it's nice to see at least with. ruling in California and the work that we're doing at the society, that there are people and laws and policies in place to make sure that uh, people, even if you don't have millions and millions of dollars to buy a chunk of coastline, are still able to access it and enjoy it. Um, So Tim, you joined the society as the executive director in 2003, is that correct? Uh, actually yes Yep. so you've had the opportunity to see the organization grow and change and overcome challenges um, for the past 15 years or so Um, I would really like to know what it's like to lead the organization um, what your experience has been and what are some moments that really stand out in your mind well uh,
1: as you can imagine I mean it's it's uh, it's like spinning plates a lot of times, like keeping all the sort of the plates up in the air. Um, but I mean, first off, there's there are tremendous people, present company included, who who are part of the society, and um, so their talents and their efforts go into it. And I and I get the you know the great honor and uh, pleasure of trying to help direct and focus that those talents on what I can see as being the most pressing issues of the day. Um, You know, I, I mean, people that work in advocacy, people that work in the environmental and conservation movements are always fighting against the status quo, right? Everything from our economic system to our political system is... Is often um, sort of tilted against the things that we're trying to do, whether it's to protect public access to the coastline from being privatized, or whether it's to bring clean water back to the city of Philadelphia. Um, you know, it's we're running against trends. So, so that part of it is it's a tremendous challenge, but it's always um, I try to keep it in perspective, right? Because um, you know. If you value these things, then somebody has to do that work right Somebody has to stand and, uh, and speak on behalf of these issues and these resources that don't aren't able to give a voice to it um, to their own protection to the needs that they have. Um, so the, you know the work as an executive director is trying to figure out one, where can we make those gains? what are the issues that are most pressing? Um, where are there places for us to advance the positive um, things that will help the, the ocean or the coastline? Uh, where do we need to play defense? As I said, we spend a lot of our time trying to figure out how to empower others because we, we know that the 24 you know, people that we have on staff are not enough to, to save the ocean, right? So we clearly spend a lot of time um, trying to bring others into uh, this cause and to help them understand. Um, and and, um, the issues help to empower them through tools and techniques that they can use to act on what are usually very deeply held convictions of their own Um, you know, society has grown as I said, from uh, fairly small when I got there I think we had five staff people um, in the core organization when I took over um, to the 24 that we have now and in doing that we've um, growing into educating people. One of the things that I um, felt very strongly about when I first came in was New Jersey has a, is a very um, um, economically and often racially segregated state. And there are communities... That live along the ocean, which are not very wealthy, um, and there are kids in the school systems there that don't have marine sciences in their curriculum. So we started a program to bring marine science into an after-school program, and, and they take the kids down to the shore, which was, you know, often just blocks from their from their homes and from their uh, from their schools, and teaching them about the ocean, but also teaching them about science itself, um, the practice of science, the study of science, and and then as that program evolved, which we called SeaQuest, um, it started to, to tap into the idea of, well, here are our job opportunities. So we um, opened up uh, partnerships with the Coast Guard and with the marine science labs here on Sandy Hook, where as part of the curriculum, the kids got to come and see what science practitioners were doing, right? So the ways that people were working on the ocean. Um, when the uh, uh, when the hurricane when hurricane Sandy hit, um, you know, there was terrible devastation in the New York, New Jersey region, um, and the natural habitats of the bays um, didn't suffer any less than um, than some of the built communities. So. We got into a big program at that point um, of restoring habitats, and that started off really around horseshoe crabs and migratory shorebirds on the Delaware Bay. But we also built um, flood control structures that could double as new pathways for uh, river herring and other endangered fish that were unable to get back up into these estuaries at times. Um, we rebuilt marshes in the heart of New York City, um, in Jamaica Bay, and brought kids in from the community through a restoration core to, uh, again, you know, teach them job skills at the same time we were connecting these kids to to the environment. So that's the really wonderful part of this, well, this, uh, both the organization, but also the job, right, is to be able to um, create those opportunities, connect people to the coast, uh, have a lasting effect both on natural world, um, you know, our work on the Delaware Bay has really helped um, stave off the, um, the extinction and threatened uh, status of some of the shorebirds um, and the horseshoe crabs. Um, but, uh, but you know, it, it involves working with lots of folks and, um, you know, sort of constantly trying to connect to people to support the work, um, and then often spending lots of time talking to people who don't want to accept the science, um, unfortunately, more recently, about some of the threats that we have to grapple with, particularly climate change and the impacts climate's having on our oceans. And then as you kind of acknowledged earlier, but you know, the ocean not only is fundamental to our ability to breathe, but uh, but um, you know, our economy is tied to it, our way of life, uh, and, and sort of some of our spiritual well-being. I think. Um, so, so that's the you know today these days. That's a big part of the work is trying to figure out how to
0: make that connection with enough people to change those, um, those minds. Yeah. And I, I definitely agree with you on, um, an area where I get my inspiration and feel most rewarded in the role that I am in, in the society is through bringing, um, bringing people in and whether they're learning something from us or engaging in a new way, um, just seeing people starting to participate and be interested um, in engaging with the environment and stewardship in a way that maybe is new to them or um, is empowering to them is definitely where I feel energized um, within this organization. And I think that that's something that everybody that works for this society is very good at doing, um, and I get a lot of inspiration from uh, those 24 other folks, 23 other folks that I work with, everybody is so dedicated to their job, and it's really apparent how passionate um, every single employee that works for the, the society is. Um, and it's, it's really been a special experience um, coming on. I've, I've been with the society now for almost three years. Uh, time flies, but they've been they've been wonderful. Just to get to know all of the diverse people and minds um, that make up this team, that all work together to to push that message of conservation um, and environmental stewardship forward, and then welcome the community in um, to help us learn about our natural world and help protect it.
1: Yeah, I think you, know, you asked about values, and I think that's absolutely right, that that's something that everyone that comes to be part of the society, whether as a member or a supporter or a staff person, uh, really shares this value of stewardship. And, you know, we talk about our education programs as getting people, you know, feet wet and hands sandy. And um, um, as you know, we always try to plug people into the restoration work, right? So we have um, a veterans team of, of guys that have retired from military service that help out on some of the projects. We have oyster wranglers um, in one of the estuaries up outside of New York City who are helping us try to reestablish oysters. Uh, there, we have the restoration course, and all of this is about being outside. Right, we are not, um, we're not folks to put the environment up on on a shelf where we're not going to interact with it. Um, you know, we are literally up to our hips often in mud and sand and water. Um, we love to drag a seine net, right? We still. I still get the same fascination out of seeing the fish come up on the same net that these little kids aren't getting for the first time when they see it as one of our educational tools. So that's really a that's really a fundamental value of, of the organization and, and that's why we talk about yeah, you know, big piece of what we try to do is connect people to the coast, right? And we try to do that through lots and lots of different ways, but but obviously the most fun is when you actually get out there on the beach in the water, you know, and and get a chance to, um, if you're lucky, um, see, hold, touch, you know, watch these, these amazing animals that live in the ocean and in the bays.
0: Yeah, I was actually going to make a, a wise crack about, well, sometimes we're also up to our hips in mud and sand and water um, up on Capitol Hill. <laughs> <laughs> All
1: right, right. I mean, but that's you know, that's, like, that's still trying to connect people to the coast, right? Even though it's you know we're all dressed up and we we have lots of scientific and legal and you know politically oriented information with us when we're trying to convince folks to do the right thing up there to protect the ocean and to take care of the coastlines. Um, it's still fundamentally that that value about um, sharing our knowledge our passion, our experiences, to connect them to why this place is important, right, why we need to take care of it, uh, why it's a, a duty and an obligation that we have, um, I think, individually, but, but as a country, um, you know, in particular, um, to take care of these places.
0: Yeah, and I think it's really special for our organization uh, to be providing opportunities to people to feel empowered and um, move that conservation goalpost forward in so many different ways. Whether it is, you know, getting out there with a the sane net and you know tromping through a marsh, or if you are dressing up and going to meet with your member of Congress and, and feeling powerful that way, um, we really do cover a, a wide range of of ways that you can get out there and advocate for conservation and for the coast.
1: Yeah, and that's and that's you know that's our that's our niche in this, right? I mean, we do the education work, we do restoration programs, but ultimately, there's always a connection between that work and this and this conversation about um, conservation policy or ocean policy or coastal policy, right? We um, we're always trying to bring folks along. We're sort of laddering them up in their engagement around these issues. And it, it, it keeps getting back to that, you know, you know, you protect what you love and you only love what you know um, idea. Um, so, um, you know, it's important. And it's important to have people that are willing to do that because I think folks are very – uh, intimidated these days by politics, um, given the tenor of some of the political conversations we have, uh, but it's 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 fundamental, right? In that these are public resources uh, ultimately, and uh, the only way the public's interest is going to be protected is if if it's articulated, right? So that that role of connecting the public and helping to be that bridge between the science and the policy question um, is something I feel very strongly about uh, a role of the society uh, prioritizes. And you know, we're not the biggest group around, um, but we're also not the smallest. So we try to be smart about how we do it, we try to be strategic, and we very, very much believe in partnerships. So we have, you know, there's a lot of really great people in this country. Um, um, that are working on the oceans, working on bays, um, working on clean water. You know, migratory animals. You know, just lots, and lots of different aspects of this world that we're lucky enough to be spending our, our lives in our professional careers. Um, and so, you know, another sort of cultural value of the societies that we really believe in those partnerships, and we uh, we do a lot of work, put a lot of time and energy into. Um, sharing our knowledge and our capacity and our skills, uh, but also drawing on and relying on our partners.
0: Absolutely, and I, I feel like that's something that I've learned over the years, is that as a conservation, a conservation community, we are much stronger together, um, and the partnerships are only going to be beneficial to us moving forward, and I, I agree. I think that's something that um, our community has been very good with and the society has been um, very good about making those connections and always welcoming in new organizations and new individuals into our world um, to try to um, help both our, our own organization meet our goals and then help our partners um, advance in their goals as well. Um, so reflecting on your time at the society... What are some of the things that you're most proud of and um, what has running and leading this society, the society taught you about leadership?
1: Well, you know, I I think the one thing I'm most proud of is the role the society played in protecting the red knot, which is a migratory shorebird that flies from the tip of South America to the Arctic and stops in the Delaware Bay every spring. At the same time, the horseshoe crabs are up on the beach uh, laying their eggs, and the birds refuel on those eggs. Um, and years ago, in the 90s, there was a overfishing, unregulated fishing of the horseshoe crabs, and that population crashed, and not surprisingly, the red knot population crashed. So society worked with... Uh, A couple partners, uh, the Audubon Society, the Delaware Riverkeeper, and we fought to finally get a moratorium on the harvesting of of horseshoe crabs as bait um, in the Delaware Bay. Um, We lost the Delaware side of that in court, but we managed to protect the um, New Jersey law um, in court. So, you know, now you can't harvest the horseshoe crabs, and the birds are... Holding their own, they're not recovering, but we're still taking you know, more steps. So that was a tremendous fight to to get that protection secured. Um, the Littoral Society was one of the first litigants under the Clean Water Act um, about the cleanup of the Chesapeake Bay, as well as other states, um, and um, some of its actions set in motion um, the programs which have been very very successful in. Um, in cleaning up the bay, um, so even though that wasn't, you know, my accomplishment by any means, that was the, something the society um, has had a role in. Um, you know, we've been uh, in and out of the courts uh, and up to the New Jersey Supreme Court four times to defend and expand the rights of the public for public access um, to the shoreline and and won a lot of significant rulings that have helped increase the ability of surfers and families and fishermen to get to the beaches um, in this very, very urbanized state that we're in. Um, and then along the way, you know, we've, as I said, we've rebuilt marshes in, in, in New York City. We have uh, cleaned up uh, marine debris and abandoned boats. We've coordinated the coastal cleanup day in, uh, in all of New York State. Um, all of which I think have a, you know have made a really great contribution. So um, it's nice to be able to look back and see that. Um, you know there are a couple places that, but for our work, would have been paved over, and that really is gratifying. And I still drive by those places that uh, used to be. There were housing developments slated that are now internal to um, national wildlife refuge units. Um, so that's you know. It's nice to be able to say I had a hand in that. Or I had, I was part of that effort to do that. Well, something,
0: uh, something else that I want to mention because I feel like the or the society should absolutely be proud of this. But I just learned that the the First Lady of Japan came out and spent a day with us doing a beach cleanup down in New Jersey. <laughs> yeah.
1: Yes. It was great. Just a couple weeks ago. Uh, Mrs. Abe was in New York with her husband, the Prime Minister, for the UN session, and we got a call from the Japanese consulate who uh, wanted to arrange a visit. She uh, she likes to learn about different parts of New York, and she's very um, very interested in marine pollution issues uh, and plastics in particular. And uh, it was great. She. Uh, We took her out on Jamaica Bay, uh, which is a big bay inside Queens and Brooklyn, uh, internal to New York City, and showed her all the wildlife that was there, and then we went and cleaned up a very, very dirty piece of beach, um, unfortunately. And uh, she led the charge. She was by far the most active uh, person cleaning up stuff off this beach. I had to laugh by the end of the hour, uh, even the secret surface protection detail was picking up garbage and putting it into into bags to get it off the <laughs> beach, so <laughs> so she was definitely leading by example, but uh, but that was great that, that they, you know, knew enough of us to find us, to seek us out, and that we were able to, uh, again, connect somebody to the coast who hopefully will carry that lesson and, and really share it, um, and she's a tremendous position
0: to do that obviously yeah from from public access wins to world leaders engaging in beach cleanups there's so much to be proud of here um so what has your role um as the executive director of the society um taught you about leadership Things one is
1: it's important to uh, lead from the front, right? I think uh, you know my responsibility is to articulate a position, to um, you know figure out where we're going to stand, and which is not to say that I do that completely independently, right? Um, we we talk about things amongst ourselves, at the staff, we we seek out our partners, but. Um, you know it's very hard these days to, to take a position on things, and, and sometimes things which are unpopular with certain folks, right? When we talk about limiting coastal development in high hazard areas because we're concerned about what happens um, when the next hurricane comes ashore. When we talk about taking critical habitat out of development so that uh, you know migratory shorebirds still have a place to um, to live and to and to uh, breed. Um, That's not always popular with mayors who are seeking tax revenues from that development. Uh, But uh, I think, you know, in order to have uh, um, anybody follow, you have to lead. So you have to be willing to take that position. Um, But I think the other part is, as I just said, really being humble enough to understand you don't have all the answers. And so... A big part of my role is to draw on the great minds and folks that I'm lucky enough to be associated with and to um, sort of integrate their thoughts and, and, uh, and their expertise and, and help figure out where the position is and then, then to bring that back, right, into a, um, a set of strategies and approaches that will hopefully be effective in, in answering the question we were trying to set out to, to deal with in the first place.
0: So from that leadership standpoint, I'd like to pivot a little bit to looking forward. Um, Can you talk a little bit about the vision for the society's future? Well, we are
1: um, increasingly trying to figure out how to um, um, really... Uh, carry forward the understanding about what science is telling us about climate and the fundamental alterations of the ocean and its systems and what the consequences are for people. Um, I mean, there's a tremendous amount of body of knowledge out there, and uh, and there's lots and lots of good folks that are raising awareness about the issue, Uh, but still still hasn't completely tipped the balance, right, hasn't tipped the scales to where we are aggressively trying to mitigate um, the ongoing contribution of carbon pollution to climate change, nor are we effectively... Um, Coming up with answers on how we're going to have to adapt to the signal that's already in the atmosphere, right? We've already bought ourselves a bucket of consequences uh, from climate that we can't undo. So we're going to have to adapt to sea level rise and more intense storms. Um, And you know, that's a that challenge falls into this this um, history that we have of understanding and being able to bring science to to folks, right, just to to quote-unquote regular people, right, people that aren't scientists, that aren't necessarily policymakers, and to help them understand how it intersects um, and and affects things that are important to them. And then how to shape things that can be responsive to what we hear from people when we present them with that information, right. How do I, um, um, you know, have my community learn to live with the consequences of climate change without losing the things that are important to me—the sense of community, the sense of place, you know, my association with the coastline. Um, those are things that people talk to us about when they when we talk about you know the need for change and adaptation. Um, so we so we are trying to continue to build on our history, build on the things we've learned, but refocus them for these new challenges, which are you know, they're, they're global in scale and, and existential, I think, in nature, right? We are talking about just changing the basic mechanics of the planet and uh, and having to deal with that. So that's a, a huge challenge. Um, part of that, you know, which expresses itself on the, sort of the education end is we're also spending lots of time thinking about how do we, continue to redouble our efforts to connect people to the coast, right? As we all get more and more lost in our devices and people become less and less community oriented. Um, how do we break through that and get people back out to where they're getting their feet wet and their hands sandy and learning about and coming to love these, these beautiful things, um, that are on the coastline. Um, I think, you know, the, the younger generation of folks, um, um, are really uh, oriented towards experiences, so there's a lot of I have a lot of hope there uh, because we are very good at connecting them and giving them experiences like dragging a seine net or holding a horseshoe crab or tagging migratory shorebirds or helping rebuild oyster reefs—things that you don't get to do, you know, sort of in your everyday life necessarily. Oh, and I think that holds a lot of promise. So. Our vision is to continue to try to find ways to do that effectively and then share those techniques um, uh, in the hopes that others will carry those ideas forward and, you know, that sort of expanding set of circles. And then lastly, I think, you know, my vision is how do we become more effective in uh, influencing policy, influencing and countering the unfortunate direction that the national government and Congress are going on environmental policy and environmental issues. I mean, the Trump administration has unfortunately sort of set about taking apart a lot of our most important uh, achievements on ocean protection, and um, that has to be stopped. It has to be countered. Um, and so we need to up our game. Uh, and rededicate ourselves to that, because that's a, that's a tremendous challenge.
0: In hearing you um, address some of the larger global um, and national level conservation challenges that we're going to face moving forward, I'm wondering how that resonates in New Jersey and what are some of the ways that you have seen um, the waters, the coast, and the climate change in New Jersey over the years?
1: So the water if you if you kind of go back to the you know the Clean Water Act and the 70s when it first got adopted the waters in in New Jersey have gotten much cleaner and you know, the literal society was very involved um, in stopping the dumping of New York City sewage sludge offshore which used to end up on the beaches and chemical waste and a lot of those are really gross pollution problems uh, my wife who's a native, you know, talks about the can of kerosene they used to keep by the back door of the beach house to wipe the tar off the bottoms of their feet when they came back from the beaches. And you know, as I said, today we have whales, we have humpback whales and dolphins that are right outside the, the mouth of the harbor. Uh, so we've we've made a lot of gains that way, but now we have these more systemic ecological changes that are happening like the the warming of the waters the shifting of uh, fish distribution in response to that Um, we still have persistent toxics that we have to deal with Um, nutrient pollution from our ever-increasing development of the watersheds um, that feed into the estuaries Um, and then you know habitat loss continues to be a big threat so so we've made gains um and then as we've Sort of knock down some of those big problems. I mean, uh, we obviously have to continue to defend them. As I said, unfortunately, those um, the laws that gave rise to those gains are under attack, uh, uh, and we have a whole new set of, of issues that we have to deal with. Um, so, I take hope in in uh, optimism from the fact that we've done this before, right? If you see. We just Google you know, photographs of America before the EPA, and you'll see the discharges of sewage into the into the waters, burning open landfills. You know, the, the New Jersey was it was infamous for the pig farms uh, of the Meadowlands, which are now um, just uh, coming back and abundant with bird and fish life. Um, and you can see what we're capable of doing, right? The the things we're capable of doing to protect and improve our ocean. Um, but there's another set of challenges coming and we need to be ready to do that, to deal with those.
0: And I love that answer because I, um, when I was listening to you was reminded of, I've had a number of people when they hear about the work that we do, um, Say you know I, I'm surprised you're not like the most cynical person on the planet or depressed because you're always faced with these big challenges that seem almost too big to overcome, but that's my exact response. Is you know you you need to one be very optimistic in this line of work, but there are wins that happen on a community level and a local level and even on the federal and and national and global level that you can turn to to see that if people like you um, me, the folks that work at the society and are in our community and advocates all over the world continue to push forward to uh, leave the world in a better place and make these improvements that there will be areas that we can can win and there will be successes
1: Absolutely and those are those are experiences that we should take as affirming, right? We, we should say to ourselves, look, we've done this before. It's never easy, but it's not impossible. Um, over, the, over the weekend, um, I spent uh, I, I paddled a kayak with a bunch of other activists um, and a wonderful foundation from Philadelphia called the William Penn Foundation. We paddled our kayaks from the city of Trenton down to the city of Philadelphia about 30 35 miles. Um, That's the birthplace of the Industrial Revolution, the um, U.S. Steel, the Roebling, ironworks, Iron Works, um, all these abandoned factories, and um, for many, many years that was a dead river, Um, and nobody went to it, they turned their backs onto it, but as we went, we sampled fish and we found young-of-the-year striped bass and American shad and white perch. Um, and the riverbanks were full of uh, um, herons and great, you know, great egrets and um, several bald eagles along the way. I mean, that's the promise of of recovery, right? That shows us that the power of something like the Clean Water Act to bring these things back. And, and we also saw people returning to the river. So there were folks other than ourselves out there in kayaks and people um, having sailing races and people fishing along the banks. Um, so there's value in these places. It's not a you know, simply an environmentalist um, sort of dream. These uh, folks you know, have um, a desire to be on these waters, um, and the tools are there to help us make that possible. So that's where I draw a lot of inspiration from. I mean you paddle I mean we basically paddled down three hundred years of history over thirty miles and uh and saw both what it what had killed the river or really knocked it down for many, many years, but also its its rebirth. So it, it
0: yeah, a and a lot of these things take time too, you know, and so maybe maybe something we're working on doesn't seem so great right now or like we have a really big hurdle to overcome but if you keep at it over decades that's how you get to the situation like with the sojourn down the river where you you guys can now enjoy that in a recreational way and you see wildlife thriving there where it used to you know be be totally polluted um, so that definitely is another inspiration to, to keep going and to keep pushing forward with the work that we're doing.
1: Um, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I am, I am of that age <laughs> <laughs> that, that I was, uh, you know, in the fifth grade on the first earth day. And I was telling the story to some of the younger folks there about the things that I've seen in, in you know in the span of my 58 years and, um, and so yes, it's a long, it's a long haul, and it's, it's difficult. But it's also really great to see folks like you who are somewhat younger than I am, and uh, you know, there's the next generation of people, um, and there were kids that were um, at a couple of stops that were doing things along the river. So it's it's a long, it's a journey. It is absolutely a journey. But there are wonderful things to be discovered along the way, uh, even in the adversity. Um, that you face, but in doing good works and building community and connecting communities back to the natural communities that are often right in their backyard, I just think that that's that's a wonderful way to spend your life, and I've been been very lucky to do that.
0: Yeah. Um, So before we wrap up, I have just a couple more questions for you. The first one um, is super important. So now that we've been chatting for about an hour... Um, I can only imagine listeners are, have totally fallen in love with the work that we do and want to learn how they can engage with it. Um, so can you tell us how can people get involved with the society's work? So we run all sorts of events
1: from nature walks to work days on rebuilding oyster reefs and salt marshes that folks are always welcome to come out and, and join in with us. Um, and you can find those events on our website uh, which is just literal society.org or .com and um, you know, we, we are a membership organization so people can join with us and, and sort of be on the inside track and get literature from us and uh, see you know early on where those opportunities are. Um, and then usually when there's a, uh, any issue of any significance, we're often there. And we um, send alerts out, um, we work through coalitions, the Healthy Ocean Coalition, the South Jersey Bayshore Coalition, um, you know, to try to give people opportunities to plug into those, those issues. Um, so there's a whole variety of ways that they can be involved with us.
0: And also I can give a plug for social media. If if our listeners are into um, Facebook and Twitter on Facebook, it's the American Literal Society. It's L I T T O R A L. And on Twitter, it is at literal society. Um, So we welcome you to follow along there um, because oftentimes if there are events or ways for the public to engage with, the work that we're doing as an organization, we will post it on social media. Um, and the last question I have for you, Tim, is: Is what advice do you have for anybody that is looking to get into this field or this line of work, um, and/or you can answer both of them or or just one, um, or somebody that is looking to lead a nonprofit?
1: Folks that are looking to get into this work is that there are lots of different ways to come at it. Um, you know, the environmental movement, my generation of it, I think, um, predominantly came to it through science. Right? We started off as biologists or uh, wildlife managers or oceanographers, um, and then moved into advocacy and and conservation work. But I think. Um, some of the most exciting and engaging people I've met recently, you know, again, younger folks are coming into it through communications and through other, other ways. Uh, so, um, you know, I think it's most about the passion and, and understanding that um, there's a role to be played by lots of different people. So don't think you have to go through um, organic chemistry in order to be involved in ocean conservation. Uh, There's lots of different things to do. Um.
0: Yep. And I, I totally agree. Um, Especially coming from someone that is a, I'm a, I'm a social scientist. I studied communications and journalism um, and have lived that life and gone down that path of just having a, a, deep passion for protecting the environment and conservation um and if you want to be involved in this world um you can be there are so many doors that will open for you and so many paths to take um so just keep pushing forward uh because there is space for all of us in the conservation community and and i always i always joke but i always say
1: and they're really great people i mean think about people who have Dedicated their lives to being on the beaches or being in the ocean or surfing or fishing. Um, they just—they tend to be really fun folks. Uh, so, uh, and, and we work in great places. <laughs> <laughs> you know, the, the leadership question is a little bit different. I—I um, I just would say if you have a passion and you have a vision and you think that you have an answer. Um, then step out and, and share it and if people you know if it resonates with people then then they'll follow um, and I, I just think people should do that because the worst people can say is no right No, I don't think that's the right way to go at it I don't think that's where the answer lies uh, but um, it's only by, by sharing those ideas by you know, having the sort of courage to step out and say hey this is what I thought about that um, that's where leadership comes from and then the rest of it's mechanics right learning how to manage an organization learning how to fundraise learning how to deal with the legal aspects of things uh so we really um the world needs more people to step forward right they need we need more people to to share the passion they have for for this environment because i know it's out there because all you have to do is go to the beach on a summer day and see how many people are enjoying it
0: yeah so if you're passionate And driven to protect and conserve the world, just be reassured that there's space for you. So keep pushing forward with that drive and and toward that goal of having a career in this space. Um, Tim, this was a fantastic conversation. Um, I honestly think that you might have a better voice for radio than I do. (laughs) (laughs) So maybe you should be sitting in this seat. Um, But that's just career (laughs) (laughs) it's just uh, one more reason to add to the list of uh, you know the many reasons of why I look up to you Um, and I I thank you again for taking the time to to share your story and wisdom with us today
1: well you're very welcome and I thank you for your work um, and I thank the folks that made this podcast possible it's really great and I I look forward to hearing all the other conversations that are going to follow from this one
0: And I would also like to take a moment to thank the listeners. Um, And if you liked what you heard and want to hear more, subscribe to the American Shoreline Podcast Network to get this and other podcasts by subject matter experts that are focused on our shorelines. Um, Episodes are available wherever you listen to podcasts. And be sure to like the American Shoreline Podcast Network and Coastal News Today on Facebook because that is where you can interact with us and submit feedback on our shows.